And let me add my welcome to that of Patrick. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Brian and I work uh, for this church. As you came in, you should have gotten a Bible as well as a couple of sheets. On one of those sheets, you have an outline. And today we'll be looking at a lot of Bible passages, Bible verses. And every Bible verse that I reference is on that sheet. So don't worry if you miss something. Uh, that's sort of a PowerPoint. Uh, if you can make it out good on you, uh, every Bible verse, almost every Bible verse should be on the PowerPoint as well. But if you can't see it, that's okay. Uh, don't worry too much. We're going to be talking about prayer today. And so it's a good idea, isn't it, that as we start, why don't we pray? So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that you help us to understand just what a privilege we have, that we can come to you, listen to you, and talk to you. And so, Father, will you help us to respond rightly to your word today? Will your Holy Spirit set our hearts on fire so that we understand just how amazing it is, how the privilege it is that we can relate to you and that we can come to you, approach your throne of grace for everything and in everything. So we pray that you will be working in our hearts now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now I've noticed in the last few months that I've somehow ended up as a smack specialist on prayer. Now some of you might know that my responsibilities include looking after those of us who lead public prayers, as well as running the central prayer meeting, which, by the way, I hope you'll come to tonight. See, last year, we had a doctrine seminar on the Trinity, and there I was asked to present a workshop on the Trinity and prayer. I recently contributed an article on prayer to the Diocesan magazine. And of course, many of you would know that the last sermon I preached here, I hope you remember anyway, was on John 17, which is all about the great prayer of Jesus. And now here I am standing before you again, talking to you about prayer. Maybe I should have a name card that says, Prayer Specialist. But as a wise preacher once said, if you want to humble a man, ask him about his prayer life. If you want to humble a man, ask him about his prayer life. So if you ask me, I know that there is a gap between my ideal prayer life and my actual prayer life. See, I know I pray too little. I take prayer for granted too much. I, I forgo prayer too often. And as I began to prepare for this sermon, I caught myself forgetting to pray. So as we begin... I want you to know that I am no specialist and I'm preaching as much to myself as to you today. Praying is hard work. And perhaps that's a good place to start. We, we all instinctively know that we should pray. We know prayer is a good thing. And there are moments, aren't there, when we enjoy praying, we find it easy. But more often than not, praying 
is hard work. And it's hard for the same reason that we find it hard to love others, to be kind and patient, to stop gossiping and grumbling. We are weak and sinful. This is the paradox of prayer. We want to pray and yet we don't. We want to pray, but we run into all sorts of problems. For one, that's the problem of distraction. Now here's a little verse that someone once wrote. I nailed to pray, but not for long. I had too much to do. I had to hurry and get to work, for bills would soon be due. Can you identify with that? You've got to rush to make that breakfast meeting with your boss or your client, so you don't pray. Your, your Blackberry or your iPhone, whatever it is, keeps beeping to inform you another email has arrived, so you don't pray. Your, your kids are noisy and grumpy and they're crying out for attention, so you don't pray. You've had a long day at work or at college, and just when you, take your, you think you'll take a quick time out with the Lord, your favorite television show comes on, so you don't pray. You've got to finish the sermon on time and you've got to get the Bible readings out so that your readers don't get upset. So you don't pray. You've read the Bible, you've closed your eyes, you begin to talk to God, you say, Dear Lord. And then suddenly your mind begins to wonder. You say, Lord, mm, I wonder where I put that thing again. And before you know it, you don't pray. See, living in this digital age doesn't help. Now, the journalist Nicholas Carr, some of you might have read his books, he's got a famous article entitled, Is Google Making Us Stupid? And he observes how the internet has dramatically shortened our attention span. You know, I've had an uncomfortable sense that someone or something is tinkering with my brain, he says. For him, reading a book now or reading a long article is very difficult. And I think the same can be said for prayer. Our distracted brains makes prayer harder. Then there's a problem of cynicism. An article on the BBC website recently asked, does prayer work? The writer had recently witnessed the Pope praying for peace. And yet the article noted, peace is as elusive as ever. You know, wars continue, terrorists thrive, dictators prosper. And although the article did not say it outright, it was clear that the writer was skeptical about prayer. Just just because he's an unbeliever, you might say. And yet some of the most cynical people you meet are Christians. You know, you've been praying for something for a long time. But God hasn't answered. So you stop praying. You've been struggling with God over some issue. And you've grown weary. So you've stopped praying. That way it's much easier, isn't it? If you don't ask, at least you won't be disappointed. If you don't ask, at least you won't be tempted to blame God. Except, of course, you don't put your hope in God either. You, you end up growing distant from God. Why, why bother talking to Him? 
God isn't going to do anything about it. Anyway, then there's also the problem of perception. Perhaps we think prayer, prayer is only for the super saints, the really mature Christians. You know, you hear of Korean believers getting up at 4.30 a.m. to pray, and then you think, oh, I could never do that. Or you read about Christians in the past who spent hours on their knees, and you feel defeated and guilty. Or you listen to people talk about feeling close to God when they pray, and you wonder, well, I don't feel the same. Why is that? Maybe we feel we are not eloquent enough. We, we don't have the right words. And so we resign ourselves to thinking that maybe good praying, authentic praying, is only for the super spiritual, the really mature. That's not me, you say. So you don't pray. And related to this is the problem of definition. A simple definition of prayer is simply talking to God. But sometimes we overcomplicate prayer. You know, we think it's about specific postures you've got to kneel in a certain way. Or, or some special form of meditation. Or we think it's only for specific times, like before a meal or for some particularly Christian occasion. Prayer is simply talking to God. But if we are convinced that prayer is something else, if we overcomplicate prayer, then we might not pray. And finally, there's the problem of Satan. We have an enemy. The Bible tells us that he is like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. He loves to hinder us and trap us. And Satan would love to stop you and me from praying. He'll try to convince us that prayer isn't that important. He'll remind you of your sin to stop you talking to God. He'll, he'll distract you and encourage your cynicism. He will wage war against us so that we don't pray. Okay, by now you're asking, how, how then can we pray? How, how can we fight against all these problems? Well, the Bible says, ultimately, the cure for our prayer lives does not lie in mere technique or magic formula. There's no quick fix. Instead, the Bible simply brings us back to God. Prayer is ultimately rooted in who God is, what He has done, and how we relate to Him. When we know the true and living God, then we will pray. And so for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to see how knowing God in his gospel, reveals the possibility and the privilege of prayer and how that in turn will inform our practice of prayer. 
Now, those of you who are regular here at SMAC, you know that our normal practice is to preach expositorily, which means preaching through Bible passages closely and consecutively. Now, today we'll be doing something slightly different, and I'll be preaching a bit more topically, which means there's a lot more Bible flipping to do. And don't worry about keeping up. Uh, I don't expect most of you to keep up, and I'd rather you just listen, and you can look up all the Bible references on the outline when you get home, or like I said, if you can make out those words on the PowerPoint, that will probably help as well. But firstly, let's think about the possibility of prayer, the possibility of prayer. Consider this question for a moment. Why should God answer your prayer? You might reply, well, 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 of course he should. He's God. That's his job. But the Bible doesn't automatically assume that human beings have an automatic right to be heard by God. In fact, we discover the opposite. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15, God makes clear to the nation of Israel that he will not listen. When you spread out your hands, I, God, will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. In 59 verse 2, Isaiah says this, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now, it's not that God has a hearing problem. Look at verse 1. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. God can hear perfectly well, but he will not answer those with unclean hands, those who sin against him. Now, imagine someone standing outside the Sultan's palace and he's shouting at the top of his voice. Now, he can claim that he's talking to the Sultan, but he's not actually, is he? He's, he's been denied access. Our sin, our iniquities have denied us access to God. And so prayer is impossible. A person can spin a prayer wheel or use prayer beats, sit in silent contemplation or chant a mantra, but none of that obligates God to listen to him or her. Isaiah 64 verse 6 to 7 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. How can a holy God tolerate unholy people? God is light. In him there is no darkness at all, the Apostle John says. If we walk in darkness, how can we have fellowship with him? 
if we are unclean and polluted, why should God show His face to us? Wonderfully, that's not all the Bible has to say. For the entire storyline of the Bible is all about how God is working to bring people back into fellowship with Himself. We often hear the question asked, don't we? Did God create the world? But we don't often ask, why did God create the world? God is absolutely under no obligation to create. But out of His grace, He brings this world into existence that He might enter into a relationship with human beings. Though God already enjoys relationship within Himself, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He graciously invites others into that relationship. The Apostle John doesn't just say God is light. He also says God is love. Though sin has now entered the world, God is going to bring people back to himself. You could put it this way. God is going to make prayer possible. What is impossible for man is possible with God. From Genesis 12 onwards, he promises to create a people who know him and are known by him. In the book of Zephaniah, the prophet pronounces judgment after judgment on Jerusalem and all the surrounding nations. But halfway through chapter 3, we now hear God's promise to restore his people. In chapter 3 verse 9 we read, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. The prophet Zechariah similarly points forward to a shepherd who will be struck, so that a people will call on his name and say, The Lord is my God. God promises a time when prayer, access to God, would be made possible. And that promise is ultimately fulfilled in the gospel. That shepherd who will be struck is the Lord Jesus himself. Now in the New Testament, it is probably the writer to the Hebrews who shows us most clearly that we can pray only because of what Jesus has done. We can pray only because of what Jesus has done. He is the great high priest who mediates between us and God. At the end of Hebrews chapter 7, the writer gives us three reasons why Jesus is such a great high priest. Firstly, his priesthood is permanent, verses 23 to 24. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he lives forever. Jesus is eternal, so his sacrifice is for eternity. And we need never fear a time where there will be no priest between us and God. 
Secondly, he is sinless, verses 26 to 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus and Jesus alone is sufficient to bring us back into relationship with God because he is faultless, he is a lamb without a blemish. Thirdly, Jesus is appointed by God. Verse 28, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. See, Jesus is uniquely qualified for this role by virtue of his life, his death, and his resurrection. Therefore, the writer of the Hebrews tells us in verse 25, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always uh, lives to make intercession for them. He is a perfect high priest. He's the one who has won us access to God. He's the one who makes prayer possible. So what does this mean for us? Well, you might remember our New Testament reading today. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, this is what we read. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And then verse 16, let us then draw near let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Or again in Hebrews 10 verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. See, every time we pray, we can have complete confidence, complete assurance that God will hear. Prayer isn't just possible, it's filled with possibilities. Jesus gives us amazing freedom to talk to God. We don't have to worry about a slip of the tongue. We don't have to worry about finding the right words. We don't need to hold back our thoughts. We can speak with utter honesty to our God. Because every time we pray, we are taking hold of the gospel. You know, God doesn't say, uh, come, come pray to me when you've sorted out your life. God, God doesn't say, come to pray, come pray to me only when your concentration improves. No, God invites us to pray when we are weak and messy and overwhelmed. After all, God has accepted us in Christ when we are weak and messy and overwhelmed. The gospel and prayer, they go together. 
the possibility of prayer is really the possibility of a relationship with God through Christ. God is more than willing to hear us because He has accepted us into His family. Prayer, you could say, is at the heart of salvation. To be prayerful is simply to be Christian. And that brings me to our second heading, the privilege of prayer, the privilege of prayer. We've just heard that in Christ, we have access to the maker of the universe. So when we do not pray, that suggests that we are blind as to his identity, his character, his nature. Now in 2003, the pop star Christina Aguilera visited a computer exhibition in Las Vegas. So a man came and introduced himself to her, offering to answer any questions that she might have. Thanks, buddy, she said, but I already have a computer guy who can do that. Aguilera was later surprised to learn that she had been speaking to someone you might have heard of, a certain Mr. Bill Gates. See, she knew she was talking to some computer guy, but she was completely blind as to his identity and standing. Brothers and sisters, when we pray, we are talking to the all-sovereign God. That is who he is. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 to 30, Jesus tells his disciples, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the Father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. You see, the smallest details of nature are all under his control. Every, every grain of sand, every electron in the universe, he knows. The psalmist tells us that he controls the rain, the thunder, and the lightning. He is the one to whom the animals look to for food. He waters the mountains and he grows the grass. And he is sovereign not only over nature, but over kings and kingdoms. In Daniel 2 verse 21, we are told, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He decides whether a nation stands or falls. The United States, China, Afghanistan, Malaysia, whatever nation you can name of, they're all in his hands. He decides in his wisdom and might whether Najib Tun Razak is going to be Prime Minister of Malaysia at the next election. He is not just sovereign over nations, but sovereign over individuals. In Proverbs 16 verse 9, we read, The heart of man and woman plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And that is why James cautions us in his letter, in chapter 4 verse 15, telling us we ought to say, If the Lord wills, 
we will live and do this or that if the Lord wills. Because only God establishes our steps. He is not just sovereign over individuals, but sovereign over individual details. Acts chapter 17 verse 26 tells us that he determines the time and exact places where you and I will live. Someone was telling me this week of a person that his family had been praying for. And they were praying that this particular person who had never shown any spiritual interest at all would at least be able to go to church. And then out of the blue, a group of Christians, not just one, a few, all moved in with her. And this was completely beyond what they expected. And not only did they move in with her, they ended up talking to her, and then before you know it, she agreed to start coming to church, and right now, she's exploring Christianity. See, nothing is ever random with God in the picture. Now, in all this, we must remember that this is the same God who has worked to reconcile us to himself. Now, God's sovereignty would be bad news if he was a divine Hitler. But he's not. He loves those who belong to him. Romans 8.28 reminds us that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Matthew 7 verse 11 reminds us that God is a generous father who loves to give good gifts to his children. See, God is a good sovereign and sovereignly good. So it's no surprise then that when the early church gathered together to pray in Acts chapter 4 verse 24, they addressed him as Sovereign Lord. They know who he is. And so, they pray. Scripture's portrayal of God's sovereignty then should challenge us. Now, we sometimes divide the world up into two categories. On the one hand, we've got the world of facts. On the other side, we've got the world of feelings and values. The world of facts are things that we believe are certain, by which we often mean scientifically proven. The world of feelings and values are something we think are completely subjective. You know, they might be true for me, but they're not true for everyone. This way of dividing up the world is sometimes called secularism. See, have you ever thought, why, why don't our newscasters open their broadcasts with prayer. Why, why would that feel odd to us? Why would that feel so strange? Because to us, God and prayer doesn't seem to belong into, into the world of facts. We only think prayer belongs to the subjective realm. Or, or maybe we won't put it quite so strongly. We say, no, 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 I believe God reigns over everything. But then we confine God's activity in this world to only so-called supernatural, big, miraculous activities, such as when God parts the Red Sea. 
or maybe we just think uh, God works when he, when in conversion, when he brings and draws somebody to Christ. But the Bible says differently. See, God is active in his world all the time. He's got everything, everything to do with your studies and jobs and household chores and internet usage and your pets. He's got everything to do with it. And that means there is nothing too big or small to pray to God about. If we don't believe that God is active in this world, in this way, then no wonder we don't pray much. We might pray from time to time, we might pray, oh God, please help me to be a bit more patient, to be a bit nicer, to be a bit more godly. But there is no desperation in our prayers. So let's repent today of our unbelief and our self-sufficiency. Let's pray as if God is truly sovereign. Now you might be thinking at this point, yes, okay, I, I want to pray like that. But, but how does this work out in practice? And, and if God is really that sovereign, why pray? And we've come now to the praxis of prayer. The word praxis is just a fancy term, meaning to move from theory to action. And I want us to examine how theory moves to action in the life of one of God's people, Hannah. So if you could, please turn with me to 1 Samuel, chapter 1, verse 1. And someone can shout out the page number if I don't get there first. Page 271. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, our Old Testament reading today. And as we read this story, or as we heard it earlier in the Old Testament reading, Hannah, at first glance, seems to be in favorable circumstances. She is married to someone, it seems, of good standing. See, verse 1 makes much of her husband, Elkanah's lineage. You know, she's the son of this, son of this, son of this, son of this. Furthermore, he is a pious man, verse 3, someone who performs his religious duty faithfully. And he loves her, verse 5. But not all is well with Hannah. The narrator informs us that she has no children, verse 2. She is sad and distressed. And it doesn't help, in verse 6, that Panina, the other wife, mocks her. And there's also the added pressure of cultural pressures. Since in that time, to be childless meant that you were likely cursed. Notice then, what Hannah does. In verse 10, she begins to pray to the Lord with many, many tears. Now the narrator makes it clear twice in verses 5 and 6 that God is the one who closes her womb. But she does not blame God and turn away from him. She doesn't give in to cynicism. 
Instead, she turns to him in prayer. She responds in faith. In verse 11, she prays, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor will touch his head. Now notice how she addresses God. For God to be called the Lord of hosts is to emphasize the infinite power, the infinite resources available to him. To Hannah, God is truly ruler of everything, not just a tribal God. And as she prays, she doesn't try to manipulate God. She accepts that it is God who has the final say, not her. She understands that it is God who is sovereign, not her. But at the same time, Hannah doesn't just shrug her shoulders and say to herself, Oh, okay, God is sovereign. I guess this is going to be my fate. Instead, she really, really asks God for a son. She is asking for a real change in her situation. She understands that if God is truly sovereign, he can do what she asks. She comes as she is. She freely pours out her soul to the Lord. In verse 13, the narrator describes it as speaking in her heart. Such is the depth of feeling that Eli, the priest, thinks that she is drunk. Hannah firmly believes that God was willing to listen and able to intervene. So she prays. That's our God. So we should pray. Now we know that God graciously answers her prayer. And she praises him in another prayer in chapter 2. And her prayer is a rich reflection of who God is. There is none like him, verse 2. The pillars of the earth belong to him, verse 8. The the weak are strengthened, the hungry are fed, the needy are lifted from the ashes. Hannah is saying, God has delivered me because that's simply who God is. God loves to redeem people and situations. All throughout scripture, we are given examples of people pleading with God on the basis of who he is. So David prays in Psalm 51 verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Psalm 79 verse 9 has the psalmist crying out, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. For the psalmist's request in Psalm 110, verse 68. You are good and do good. So teach me your statutes. That's our God. So we should pray. 
But come back with me to Hannah's prayer in chapter 2. We must see one last thing about God. We know God does not always intervene in a situation the way he did Hannah's. Her son Samuel is in one sense unique in Israel's history. So we know that in reality, actually the hungry often remain hungry. The poor often remain poor. The childless often remain childless. But Hannah understands what has happened to her is actually a glimpse of God's future kingdom. In verses 9 and 10, she looks ahead to the time when God will deliver his people, defeat his enemies, and judge the earth. And he will do this through his king. In the small picture, things don't always work out. But in the big picture, God will definitely win. Hannah knows for certain that this is true. And so she rejoices and prays. Today we know for certain that King Jesus died on the cross. We know that on that cross a great reversal took place. The sinful were rescued. The sinless was punished. In Christ, God has redeemed us. But God's kingdom, God's redemption, will only come in all its fullness when King Jesus comes again. And so like Hannah, we look forward to that day. Like Hannah, we pray in light of that day. And every time God chooses in his will to graciously answer our prayer, he is giving us pointers to that great day when his kingdom will come in its fullness and Jesus will clearly be seen to be king. That's our God. So we should pray. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We know that too often we are prayerless. We have allowed ourselves to be distracted. We have allowed ourselves to become cynical. We have failed to see you as you really are. But Father, thank you so much for Jesus, our great high priest, who has won us access to God, who has given us this privilege of prayer. And so, Father, would you help us to pray? Would you help us to truly believe that you are loving and sovereign? That you are able to intervene in this world? And so, Lord, help us to pray in line with your will. Help us to pray on the basis of who you are. For you are the true God. You are merciful. You are loving. You want to do good. And Lord, we pray that we will always pray in light of that great day in the future when King Jesus will come back and we will see his kingdom in all its fullness. 
We pray all this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.